right. Good morning, everyone. Let's grab a seat and we will uh, get started here. Good to see all of you this morning. Thank you for being here. I, I know there's lots of things in the summertime, especially, that can pull our attention away, so I'm glad you guys have all intentionally chosen to be together this morning. Welcome to everyone online. If you are relatively new here and you are still just trying to kind of get to know us as a church, please let us know. And if you have any questions, let me know. I'll be happy to chat with you after the service or any of the leadership just to find out a little bit more about who we are and kind of what makes us tick. A um, couple of quick announcements before we go into worship here. One is that BBS, our kids camp, starts tomorrow morning. So if you have not signed up for your kids for that, I think there's still space. Tom, do you know if there's still space? No, there's no space? Okay, never mind. <laughs> if you didn't sign up, I'm sorry. You'll have to make sure you're proactive next year. Uh, but for those of you that are signed up, just a reminder, tomorrow it starts. And then this Saturday is the Kids Clothing Swap. Uh, which is a really cool community event that happens here at the church. It's an opportunity to reach out to neighbors and friends. Um, they can come and get free books, free kids' clothes, all that kind of stuff. It's just a big swap. And if you have clothing that maybe you've, your kids have grown out of and you want to just kind of move it along to someone else and it's gently used, bring it by Thursday or Friday evening here at the church, and uh, they will get it all sorted out. So the swap is from 9 to 11, I believe, on Saturday morning, this Saturday the 23rd. Also, really important to remember this, the Buffalo Bill Days service is back. So Buffalo Bill Days is the last weekend of July. So on Sunday, July 31st, after two years off because of COVID and such, uh, they are, we are going to be doing the Buffalo Bill Days worship service once again. So yeah, I know, exciting, isn't it? So nine o'clock Sunday morning, the 31st, so that's two weeks from today, we will be meeting at the park, joining with the other churches in Golden for a joint worship service. Uh, just a heads up, I don't think they're gonna have bleachers this year like they've always had in the past. So make sure you bring lawn chairs, water, sunscreen, all of that. It's an hour long service, it's a great community event. Um, and we will not be having a church service here on that Sunday. So if you show up here two weeks from today at 10 o'clock, we won't be here. So it'd be better if you showed up at 9 o'clock down at Parfait Park in uh, downtown Golden uh, two weeks from today. And then another reminder, we are not doing Sunday school for the month of July for the school-aged kids. We still have childcare for the nursery and toddlers and preschool. Um, but we are looking for teachers. So if this is something that God has been kind of working on you on a little bit, and maybe you want looking for a place to, to plug in at Hillside, uh, it's a great opportunity to serve our kids. Tom and Angela do an amazing job with our children's ministry. They prepare everything in advance, so it's very easy. So just touch base with them and uh, let them know you're interested in volunteering. Okay, so let's pray together, and then we will go into a time of worship. Father God, we do just thank you for uh, this day, and thank you for this community and all the amazing things that you're doing in our midst and among us and through us. And Lord, we just pray for your continual blessings on the community of Golden, on the churches of Golden, on just all the, the brothers and sisters in this area and Lakewood and Littleton and Arvada. And Lord, we're just grateful to be able to come together this morning to worship you, to praise you, to hear from your word and to be in fellowship together. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, good morning, Hillside. Why don't you guys stand up we're going to sing some songs together. I know some of you guys are just rolling in. Some of you might not be awake yet, but we're going to jump in 
We're going to celebrate. We're going to worship. So let's not be afraid to jump around. Sing loud. We're going to sing of our testimony. This 
I open up to you. This love that makes me new. Oh, may my heart receive this love that carries me. Let's sing that again. I open up to you This love that makes me new Oh, may my heart receive This love that carries me From the head to the heart Take me on journey, letting go, get lost in you. From the head to the heart, take me on a journey, letting go, get lost in you. My heart is open wide. I will receive your life. You give me faith like a child. In you, my heart runs wild. Cause there's no shame. Looking like a fool And I give you what I can't keep Take a hold of you there's no shame Looking like a fool When I give you what I can't keep Take a hold of you I found your love in the open fields. More than words, more than good ideas. I found your love in the open fields. More than words, more than good ideas. I found your love in the open fields more than words more than good ideas and I found your love in the open fields head to the heart take me on a journey letting go get lost Lost in you, there's no 
Lord God, we today just come before you, um, ready for what you want to do. So we pray for your just anointing over the message, over just the rest of the service, um, that you would just make yourself known to us in new and amazing ways that you just have not before, that we come to know you more. So, Lord God, we open up to you and just ask for you to do what you want to, God. Amen. Before you sit down, be sure to say hi to somebody next to you. And also, there is no youth group today. Forgot to mention that earlier. Test, test.
All right, I think we will uh, try to uh, pick it back up here. So if you could grab a seat. <clears throat> it's so good to see all of you here, and it's so good to just see the community, everyone chatting. We, we didn't do that for a couple of years. We stopped this whole greeting period during COVID, and now you kind of realize how important that is to this community, just that, that time. And, you know, there are times when you're preaching, and it's like, oh, I can just let this go for 20, 25 minutes, and then we'll just go right back into worship. That'll be fine. That'll, it'll be good. So great to have you all here. Good-looking summer crowd. Good to see you all. Um, Christy and I just got back from a really nice trip along the East Coast, and we spent two weeks and drove 1,800 miles, and we are still happily married, and probably even more so today. We had a great time. She's an awesome traveling partner. Uh, we were gone for a couple of weeks, so we were gone over a couple of Sundays, and we were very intentional and went to a couple of churches. We went to one church um, right outside of Virginia Beach and another church right outside of Hilton Head. And they were both really good churches, both very, very different from Hillside. But, you know, they were worshiping the Lord, they were preaching the Word, just a very different feel. And i got to tell you, it is so good to be back at Hillside. And I just love our worship team. I mean, just, just the authenticity of our worship team. And we have so much talent in this church. It's just, it's remarkable. So, thank you guys for leading us this morning and every Sunday. And, just grateful that. When we were in the Outer Banks, um, I actually picked up this hat that says, stay salty. Now, out there, that kind of refers to the beach saltwater lifestyle, but I picked it up because it reminds me to stay salty as a Christian. You know, to be salt and light, which is what Kevin spoke on last week. So I just love this hat when I saw it, and I had to have it for that reason. And our message for this week begins to kind of unpack what it means to be salt and light. And one way that we can be more salty, that we can retain our saltiness, is to make sure that we're in the Word of God, right? That we are studying and reading the Bible, because that's one of the things that makes us salty. And I also believe, as we'll talk about today, that it's really important to read and understand and apply and follow the moral law of God. So I want you to think about this. How regularly, how often do you read the Old Testament? Have you read it this week? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> okay, well, there we go. <laughs> Have you read it this month? Have you read it this year? Yes, okay, I get a few yeses, a few noes up here. Good work, good work, Macuse, yeah. <laughs> well, in my research over the last month, or excuse me, over the last week, um, I, I came across a very unofficial, very unscientific study, really just a guy's opinion on the internet, <laughs> that said that, that the reading of the Old Testament makes up around 10% of the typical Christian's Bible reading. And if you take out the Psalms and the Proverbs, it actually goes down to about 5%. Okay. Now, again, that was just someone's opinion based on a very loose, informal study, but it's probably not too far from the truth. We don't really spend a lot of time in the Old Testament. Now, as a church, we have gone through, as you know, we're, we kind of preach uh, exegetically, we go through a book, like right now, we're going through the Sermon on the Mount. 
passage by passage, verse by verse. We just finished the book of Galatians. We have done a number of Old Testament books over the years. It's been a few years since we've done one, but we'll be back in the Old Testament at some point. But we've done Judges, we've done Haggai, we've done stories about Abraham, you know, series on Abraham and other leaders in the Bible in the Old Testament. And, and it's really valuable to have that balance. So the New Testament is obviously primary in understanding and living out the Christian faith. But the Old Testament and the New Testament together tell the whole story of God and his people and our faith. Yet we often neglect the Old Testament. Maybe because we think it's out of date. Maybe because we think it's intimidating or inaccessible. Maybe we think it's got kind of a different tone and we don't like the tone of the Old Testament compared to the New Testament. Or maybe it's because we believe or we've been taught somewhere along the way that somehow the Old Testament has been made irrelevant because of what Jesus did on our behalf. But I would suggest that none of those are valid reasons for not reading the Old Testament. And I would say that we should be reading it on a regular basis and we should be studying it and we should be connecting it with the New Testament and reading the entire Word of God. And our passage for today, out of the Sermon on the Mount, which is our study right now, addresses this issue. So let's read it. So this is Matthew 5, 17 through 20. Do not, and this is Jesus speaking, remember, in the Sermon on the Mount. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear... Not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So passages like these really demonstrate that so much of what Jesus taught during his time on earth and so much of what he taught through the apostles and through the writers of the New Testament was based on the Old Testament found its foundation in the Old Testament, found its foundation in what they called the Scriptures. So when you see references to the Scriptures in the New Testament, Paul and Jesus, and Peter, they're talking about the Old Testament. The New Testament hadn't been written yet. They were in the process of compiling this, and it would take several hundred years for it to fully come together. But they're talking about the Old Testament Scriptures. And so you see how much of it was, was, was reliant on that. So it's impossible, I believe, to fully understand the New Testament apart from the Old Testament. And that can seem like a paradox because we are under a covenant of grace, not a covenant of law, yet the law still matters. But before we continue, let me pray for our time in, in the Word this morning. God, we just thank you for your Word, for all of it, for just the totality of your Word. And Lord, I just pray that this message would illuminate your word and illuminate the truth for us, that you would be glorified and that we would be edified and encouraged by what we hear today. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, our overall study for our, for the study, or excuse me, our overall theme 
for our study of the Sermon on the Mount is the king teaching about his kingdom. And one of the amazing things about the Sermon on the Mount as you unpack it is that every teaching flows from the teaching that comes right before it. So each of the Beatitudes flows from the one that comes before. And Jesus' teaching on salt and light flows from the Beatitudes. And his teaching on the law here in verses 17 through 20 really flows from the teaching of being salt and light. So the Beatitudes basically focus on the character of believers. And and the teaching on salt and light that Kevin went through last week teaches on the function and the purpose of believers, to be salt and light in the earth. And then beginning with this passage on the law, we start to see how we go about doing that. What does it look like to be salt and light? So let's dig into what the king was teaching here in this passage, starting with verse 17. Okay? It says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, the first thing we need to understand here is what is Jesus referring to when he talks about the law and the prophets? Well, he's referring to the whole Hebrew Bible, okay? or what we now call the Old Testament. The first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, make, make up what is known as the Torah, the law. Okay? And then the prophets, as Jesus refers to them here, refers to the rest of the Bible. Now, there's different ways that it's, that it's categorized. You have the law, the prophets, and the writings. In other places in the New Testament, it's called the law of Moses and the prophets, or it's just called the law. It's all referring to the Old Testament. So the prophets here includes all the major prophets, the minor prophets, the writings, the wisdom literature, all of it. So Jesus is saying everything here. Okay? Now, back in the second century, in the early church, there was a bishop named Marcion. And Marcion believed that the entire Old Testament should be excluded from the Christian Bible. Marcion believed that the God of the Old Testament was different than the God of the New Testament. The God of the Old Testament was all about wrath and vengeance. The God of the New Testament was all about love and mercy. So he believed we should just toss out the Old Testament. Okay? But we see the same God throughout the Bible. There is a God of love and mercy and grace in the Old Testament, and there is a God of judgment and wrath in the New Testament as well. It's the same God all the way through. Now, Marcion also believed that many of the books in the New Testament should not be included in the Christian Bible. He believed basically that the Gospels and the letters of Paul should comprise the New Testament, period. So again, that was in the second century. Now, he was shown to be wrong with that, and he was branded as a heretic by the early church. But unfortunately, that Marcionite mentality, that Marcionite theology, continues in the church today. And there are still people out there saying that we don't need to read the Old Testament. They say that because we are under a covenant of grace, we don't need to be concerned with the law whatsoever. But nothing could be further from the truth. What does Jesus say here? He says that he did not come to abolish the law. He did not come to repeal the Old Testament. His mission was to fulfill the Old Testament in its entirety. So as people who follow Jesus, it is imperative that we understand the law and what it is that Jesus came to fulfill. Now, originally, God gave the law to Israel, right? His chosen nation. And God gave them the law to show them what it meant to be a holy people, a consecrated people, a chosen people. And he gave them the law to make the nation unique and attractive among the rest of the nations in order to draw 
the other nations to himself. Not to make them exclusive, but to make them inclusive of the other nations. So Israel was a theocracy, a nation under the rule of Yahweh, their king, and governed by the law that he had given them. Now, there were three different aspects of the law that we need to consider. Okay, the judicial aspect, the ceremonial aspect, and the moral aspects of the law. And there's 600 plus laws in the Old Testament, and they can all be sort of categorized according to this grid. Now, the judicial aspect of the law basically governed the practical day-to-day aspects of people's lives in Israel. So this included laws about agriculture, building, clothing, diet, cleanliness, settling disputes, etc. And so these laws were specific to Israel as the chosen nation of God in their particular historical situation. Now, Jesus was a Jew, and Jesus followed the judicial aspects of the law perfectly his entire life. When he was put on trial in front of the leaders of the Jewish people right before his crucifixion, they could find nothing wrong. They could find no breach of law. And so he fulfilled the judicial law. Now, furthermore, the judicial law no longer holds sway because the nation of Israel is no longer a theocracy. Okay? When Jesus was crucified, the nation of Israel rejected their Messiah. Okay? John 19.15 says, The people of Israel shouted, Take him away! Crucify him! And Pilate responded, he said, Shall I crucify your king? And the leaders, the chief priests of the people said, we have no king but, is, but, but Caesar. Excuse me. See, Israel was a theocracy. God was supposed to be their king. And you read back in Samuel and, and where, where they demanded a king of their own. Okay, But God was supposed to be the king. So they rejected him. And right before his crucifixion, Jesus had warned the Jews. He says, therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Okay. Now, I believe that God will redeem Israel, and I believe that Israel will be an essential part of the end times. But at that point in history, at the crucifixion, when they rejected the Messiah, that relationship between Israel and God was interrupted, and the kingdom of God was removed from them. And Israel was no longer a theocracy, and the judicial law was no longer in force. Next, the ceremonial aspects of the law governed Israel's religion and ritual. And there are numerous laws about their religion and ritual and how the temple was to be built and how how the purification and ordination of the priests was to happen. So, So I'm oversimplifying it dramatically here, but one of the primary aspects of the ceremonial law was the entire sacrificial system. And there were numerous sacrifices and offerings. You have the burnt offering, the purification offering, the fellowship offering, the reparation offering, the wave offering, etc., etc., etc. And when Jesus died on the cross, he fulfilled the ceremonial law by being the once and for all perfect sacrifice. And so we no longer have to bring animals up to the altar and slaughter them and, and anoint and purify the altar with their blood. See, his perfect sacrifice brought all the other sacrifices to an end. And because of that, the ceremonial law no longer applies. Now, the third aspect of the law is the moral law. 
And this was God's standard of behavior for Israel. And at the core of the moral law was the Ten Commandments. And the moral law governed the people's relationship with God, and it governed their relationship with each other. And and, and the moral law of God was ultimately given for all people, not just Israel. Israel was to be the exemplar. They were to be the example of the moral law to all the other nations. And they were to teach the other nations God's moral law. Now, Jesus fulfilled the moral law with his sinless life, his perfect righteousness. He obeyed every command and he lived up to every standard, something that no one else could ever do, just Jesus, because he was God. So he fulfilled the moral law. But it still informs us today about what it means to live morally. And in giving us the Holy Spirit, Jesus continues to fulfill the moral law of God through us, his followers today. And we fulfill the moral law of God by yielding to the Holy Spirit and allowing him to work in our lives. So we are part of the ongoing fulfillment of the moral law of God. Okay? Now, it doesn't mean we live perfect, sinless lives, but it does mean that Christ lives out his life through us by the power of the Holy Spirit. So while the judicial and ceremonial aspects of the law no longer apply technically, the moral law of God does. Now again, I would say here that even though these judicial and ceremonial aspects don't apply, there is still value in reading those. Because at a very minimum, they tell us about the character of God. So again, I wouldn't throw them out. I would continue to read them. So the moral law of God still applies. In fact, nine of the Ten Commandments are repeated in the New Testament and commanded to believers. Who knows which one is not repeated? It's the Sabbath. The Sabbath command is not repeated. Jesus talks about the Sabbath, but the command is never repeated because Jesus is our Sabbath. By believing in Jesus, you enter into rest. And no particular single day is more holy than another. That doesn't mean you shouldn't, you know, honor the Sabbath, if that's, if that's your thing. But, but, but Jesus is our Sabbath, and we've already entered into that eternal rest, if you will. Okay. And as we will see when we start looking at the so-called antitheses, and I'll explain that next week, but there's these six antitheses in the Sermon on the Mount. You know, you have heard it said, do not commit adultery, but I tell you, even if you look at another woman with lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery. So you have these six antitheses. And what we see in those antitheses is that not only are these commands repeated in the New Testament, but in some cases they're elevated to a whole new level. Now, before we go on, it's really important to note that we don't obey an external set of laws out of fear or in order to attain our salvation. Rather, we obey this internal law guided by the Holy Spirit written on our hearts and we obey out of love and gratitude for our salvation. Excuse me, from our salvation. So we don't obey them for our salvation, we do them from our salvation. Let's continue with verse 18. Okay. It says, what Jesus is saying next is that the law, God's word, is permanent and unchanging. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything 
is accomplished. Now, you've probably heard this other ways. The King James puts it as, not a jot or a tittle will be taken from the law. It's the same idea. And to a Jewish audience, the smallest letter would have represented the yod, the, the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet, which is basically like a little apostrophe. And the least stroke of a pen would have represented these small marks that distinguish one Hebrew letter from another. And what Jesus was saying here is that not only would the smallest letter not disappear, but not even the smallest part of a letter would disappear from the law. Not even the most insignificant part of God's word will be removed until everything is accomplished. Now, as I've already mentioned, Jesus brought to completion the judicial law and the ceremonial law. But God's moral law, centered on the Ten Commandments, is still every bit as valid. And Jesus held the law in high regard, which we see in the next verse. He says, therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So we are still called to practice and teach the moral law of God. Now, one of the things that's been happening in our culture, I know you've all seen this, over the last several decades is a decline a sliding into moral relativism. Expressions like, oh, just do your own thing. Or, hey, what's true for you isn't necessarily true for me. Those, those statements become standard in our society. Now, interestingly, this attitude was also prevalent in the time of judges in Israel's history, when everyone did what was right in their eyes. That was a period of moral relativism in Israel's history, and arguably the darkest time in Israel's history, a horrendous time. If you read the account of Judges all the way to the end, it is a horrible time in their history. They end up in full civil war in the nation of Israel. You see, freedom is often equated with doing what we want to do, and people today are desperate to find fulfillment in the moment regardless of standards and regardless of consequences. And we don't want to be held accountable for our actions. Okay, that drives relativism. We justify things. Now, this all stems, I believe, from a breakdown in the connection between absolute truth and morality. You see, rules without absolute truth behind them are rules that have no absolute authority. And over time, as we see in our culture, Rules change based on the whims of who's in power. So in a society where absolute truth is abandoned, in a society where God is abandoned, then the basis for law and morality is abandoned, and everything becomes relative. And we see throughout history, when that happens, it results in chaos. It results in anarchy. So we need absolute truth. Now, this slide into relativism sadly happens within the church as well. In the interest of love and forgiveness and grace, we start to excuse sin. We start to ignore sin. We start to justify sin, and and we just overlook it because we're so focused on love and forgiveness, which are good things. 
But as you look at the Bible, there is always a tension in these things. There is a tension between the holiness of God and the grace of God, between the justice of God and the, the righteousness of God and the goodness and love of God. We can't ignore these things. Okay? And some even claim that because God's grace covers every offense we could possibly commit, that there's no need to pursue holiness in one's life. Just live and he'll forgive, right? That's an abuse of grace. So we have to consider this relationship between law and grace. Now, the New Testament does teach in some ways that believers are freed from the law, but as we discussed, the moral law of God still applies. So how do we reconcile that? Well, there are consequences to how we treat the moral law of God in this verse here, and Jesus addresses those. Negatively, he says that anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. In other words, if we set aside or ignore God's commands and teach others to do so as well, there will be negative consequences. We will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Now, this doesn't say that we will lose our salvation. We'll still be in the kingdom of heaven, but we will be seen as lesser in the eyes of God. And this could apply to our blessings, our rewards, our joy, our usefulness in the kingdom, all those things. Now, positively, he said that whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So does that sound like something we can ignore? Absolutely not. God's moral law is a reflection of his character. And Jesus upheld all the aspects of the moral law. So as we strive to become more like Jesus, God's moral law should be a reflection of our character as well. Now, admittedly, there is somewhat of a paradox here in the New Testament, especially in Paul's writing. In Romans 6.14, Paul wrote that we are no longer under law, but under grace. Okay, so if you pull that out of context, look at it by itself, you can see how sometimes people come up with this idea that, okay, well, we're no longer under law, so what's the point of reading the Old Testament? But you've got to look at these things in context. Right before that, in verses 12 and 13, he says, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin. Okay? And then right after it, in verse 15, he says, What then? Shall we sin because we're not under the law but under grace? Of course not, by no means. Okay, so again, there's that tension between law and grace. We can't pick one and ignore the other. We can't pick grace and say, okay, it's all about grace, we can ignore law. And we can't be legalistic and pick law and say, oh, it's all about grace. Okay? We can't, we can't pick one or the other. They have to both play together. But as, we, we, uh, but as Christians, we are no longer under the ultimate penalty of law. Jesus took care of that for us. But that doesn't mean we are free from the requirements of righteousness. And it doesn't mean that the moral law of God no longer applies. It does. It points us to God's character, right? It guides our behavior, it reveals our sins, and it points us to Christ as the solution for our sin. Okay. And even when we're reading through the law, and we see condemnation, and we see punishment, and we see these horrendous consequences, it should be a constant reminder that Jesus took that condemnation. He took that punishment upon himself on the cross. Let's look at our final verse and our last point here. It says, for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, 
you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, now think about Jesus' audience here, primarily Jews, and how they would have heard this. They looked up to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law as exemplars of righteous behavior. And, and primarily because the Pharisees and teachers of the law had worked hard to cultivate that kind of respect. They held themselves up as models of righteousness. But they concerned themselves mainly with external observance of the law and of their traditions. See, they weren't concerned with the motives of the heart, which is why Jesus confronted them and said, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. See, they thought God would judge them on their outward behavior, not on their thoughts and motives. And so they were mainly concerned with looking righteous on the outside, with their actions and their deeds. They knew the law. They were experts in the law. And because of that, they knew it was unattainable. They knew it was a possible, impossible to achieve. So what they did is they crafted traditions around the law. And that was what primarily drove their behavior. They compiled lists of do's and don'ts that were inspired by the law, but were attainable by human beings. And these traditions were actually more detailed than God's laws, but they stayed within the bounds of human accomplishment. So their whole system was based on self-righteousness and on reducing the standards of the law to something that they, as teachers of the law, could achieve and adhere to because they knew the rules, but the common Jewish person on the street couldn't because they didn't know all the rules. But Jesus would not accept their self-righteousness. Their righteousness was only external, their religion was dead, and it made them proud instead of humble. And Jesus was saying that to enter the kingdom of heaven, one had to have a greater righteousness, one that surpassed the righteousness of the Pharisees. And as we discussed in our study of Galatians, one of the main purposes of the law was to be a tutor, to help us come to the conclusion that we could never achieve the righteousness of God on our own because God demands perfect righteousness, which is an impossible standard. But that's why we need Jesus. He fulfilled the judicial law on our behalf. He fulfilled the ceremonial law on our behalf. He fulfilled the moral law on our behalf. And he continues to fulfill the moral law through us today. And when we believe in him, when we accept him as our Savior and submit to him as our Lord, we are clothed, literally clothed in that righteousness. And at that point, when God the Father looks at us, he no longer sees our sin. He sees us as righteous in and through Christ. So that surpassing righteousness that Jesus spoke of here comes from knowing Jesus and being clothed in his righteousness. So, the moral law of God still matters. It points us to God's character. It teaches us about the kind of behavior that God expects. It reveals our sins, and it points us to Christ as the solution for our sin. So as I asked at the beginning, how often do you read the Old Testament? And if the answer is not much, the first step here is to add it to your reading list. 
we can learn so much from the Old Testament, from all of the characters, all of the stories, the law itself. We can learn so much about God. We can learn so much about what it means to be righteous. And we see the whole platform and foundation for what Jesus did on our behalf. The Old Testament points to a Messiah. And the Old Testament makes up about two-thirds of the Bible, too. Now, the second thing is to think about the specific laws that you encounter. As I mentioned, there's over 600 individual laws. And that sounds like a lot, but it's nothing compared to our society today. But as you read the Old Testament, you come across these laws, especially in Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Think about how each particular law fits into these categories. Is it judicial? Is it ceremonial? Is it moral? And there's some nuances there. It's not all cut and dry. But also think about how those laws filter through the grid of the New Testament and filter through the teaching of Jesus. Okay, see, we can't just ignore the laws because we are under covenant of grace. We have to consider them individually and understand how they drive our behavior. Is a particular law repeated in the New Testament but not changed? Or is a particular law altered in some way as it's brought up in the New Testament, maybe even elevated to a higher standard, like we'll start talking about next week? Or is a particular law nullified on our behalf because of what Jesus did? And again, there's some nuances there. I mentioned earlier, we don't actually perform the sacrifices anymore. Okay, we don't perform blood sacrifices. Praise the Lord. It was a bloody, visceral thing. And it, and it consumed their society and their culture. It was a huge part of it. It wasn't just like, you know, uh, every Sabbath they would bring, you know, an animal, a goat. It was a constant thing. And there were literally rivers of blood flowing from the temple. Okay. We don't do that anymore. However, we are expected, as Romans tells us, to present ourselves as living sacrifices. Right? And... Even though we don't do a purification offering to atone from sin, 1 John 1, 9 says, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive your sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So there is an aspect where we are still practicing some of the principles of those sacrifices, if not the literal sacrifices. Now, the third step is as you read the New Testament, pay attention to references of the Old Testament. They're everywhere. One of the easiest ways to see this is to use a New American Standard Bible, which puts all of the direct quotations to the Old Testament in all caps. So it's very clear when you come across one of those references. Okay, Jesus uses them all the time. Paul, Peter, all the writers of the New Testament refer back to the Old Testament. And when you come across a reference like that, don't just ignore it. Go back and read it in its original context. Start making those connections because the whole Bible is the account of his people and it's important to understand the whole Bible, the whole story, and all of those connections between the Old Testament and the New Testament. So when you read in Hebrews 13 that Jesus was our sin offering and if you look back and you understand the sin offering in its context in Leviticus 4, 5, and 6, the sin offering, was burnt, part of it was burnt up on the altar, but the rest of the carcass was taken outside the city and burned. Take the, pure, take the sin out. So Jesus had to be crucified outside of the city, and Hebrews 13 makes that, that connection explicit. Okay, but if you don't understand the sacrificial system, we only get a part of the story. And then lastly, ask yourself, 
where does your righteousness come from? See, our righteousness does not come from our behavior. Our righteousness does not come from adherence to a bunch of do's and don'ts. It comes from Jesus through the Holy Spirit. And from that, we behave in a moral way. And we don't follow the moral law of God to achieve righteousness. We do it out of love and gratitude for what Jesus did on our behalf. And remember, as we're studying the Sermon on the Mount, internalize these teachings. Put them into practice. Don't just walk away this morning and forget what's been said. Jesus says here, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on a rock. And he's talking about all these teachings he just went through. So review it, reflect on it, talk about it, ask questions, and figure out how to put it into practice in your life. Let's pray. Almighty God, we just uh, are humbled by just your goodness in our lives and what Jesus did on our behalf. We are so thankful, Lord, for his sacrifice and his fulfillment of the law for us. And Lord, we confess that at times we take the easy way out and just rely completely on grace, which your grace is a good thing. But that doesn't mean we can abuse it. And so, Lord, help us to understand your standards. Help us to live as salt and light. Help us to live out the character and quality of the Beatitudes so that others will notice, so that others will be drawn to us and ultimately drawn to you. In Jesus' name we pray.
God, we declare that. We declare that as a congregation and as individuals that you are God. Thank you, Lord Jesus. your Holy Spirit to, to help us on this side of heaven. Lord God, may our efforts not be put towards trying to do what you've already done, but may our hearts just be God to, to rest in that. I love that, that you're our continual rest, Jesus. That we get to live in that now. So may our hearts just rejoice in that truth. And may we just be overwhelmed with just hearts of gratitude for that. And may our hearts and lives, even our thoughts and our desires be a reflection of you and your heart for us. song of my life you always lead me you are the voice inside you are my love no one before you all that I am points to you sing that again you are the light song of my life you always lead you are the voice inside you are my love no one before you all that I am points to you and I was made was made for you. I am unfulfilled without full communion. Sing, you are the light. You are the light, song of my life. 
always lead me. You are the voice inside. You are my love. No one before you. All that I am longs for you. I was made.
You're my life. You're my everything in you is all I need. You're my breath. You're my life. You're my everything in you is all I need. You're my breath. You're my life. You're my declare this together in you is all I need you're my breath you're my life you're my everything in you is all I need you're my breath all stand together and, uh, and just praise the Lord this last song. Our Father everlasting, the all-creating one. God Almighty, through your Holy Spirit, conceiving Christ the Son, Jesus our Savior, believing God our Father, I believe in Christ the Son, I believe in the Holy Spirit. Our God is three in one. I believe in the resurrection that we will rise again. I believe in the name of Jesus. judge and our defender suffered and crucified forgiveness is in you descended into darkness you rose in glorious light forever seated high I believe in God our Father I believe in Christ the Son, I believe in the 
the Son. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Our God is three in one. I believe in the resurrection that we will rise again. For I believe in the name of Jesus. I believe in God our Father. I believe in Christ the Son. I believe in the Holy God is three in one. I believe in the resurrection that we will rise again. For I believe in the name of Jesus. I believe. I believe in God our Father. I believe in Christ the Son. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Our God is three in one. In the resurrection that we will rise again for I believe in the name of Jesus for I believe in the name of Jesus for I believe in the name of Jesus get an amen. <laughs> Have a great week. <laughs>